Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder, you know, a founder that uh, that I think is going to teach us a thing or two about entrepreneurship and building something from nothing, scaling it, financing it, competitors, you know, copying your technology, I mean, you name it. You know, I think without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Andrew Smith. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be part of it. So originally from Massachusetts, but obviously you grew up traveling back and forth to New England and spending some time in the woods. So tell us about growing up. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, yeah, so I grew up in Salem, Massachusetts, but spent a lot of time of my childhood uh, going up to northern New England, spent a lot of time in the woods and got very passionate about exploring pristine wild places. And that certainly had an impact on how I thought about what types of uh, career and, and businesses I wanted to start in the future. And I guess that they also getting into, you know, some excitement with Ferraris and Porsches, you know, also gave you some <laughs> perspective as well. Yes, absolutely. So, so yeah, I directly credit uh, both the companies that I've founded and built uh, with having a passion for the outdoors, but also in my early days, uh, I uh, received some car and driver magazines, and I got really excited about Ferraris, Lamborghinis, and Porsches. In fact, I covered the walls with uh, with a lot of posters of them. And then in uh, seventh grade, I had this fantastic science teacher who pointed out that Ferraris, Lamborghinis, and Porsches got really bad fuel economy. And so I uh, declared to my parents in eighth grade that I was going to uh, focus my life on environmental technologies. And you had um, uh, a lot of different opportunity there. I'll say it's as applicable uh, back then as it is today that with uh, 7 billion growing quickly to 10 billion people on the planet, I feel the biggest business opportunity is how we do everything we do, whether it be transportation and sports cars to the food we ate, the materials we use, um, I, I, how we ship product, et cetera, to be more environmental and sustainability is a, is a massive opportunity for entrepreneurs. That's amazing. And obviously, in your case, you ended up studying physics. So what got you into physics? So uh, what I realized early on is there was uh, fascinating things to be built, but there was also fascinating things to be learned about uh, why technologies weren't out in the market already. So my first job ever, um, I was managing an electric vehicle demonstration program in Massachusetts. And 
here was this incredible thing. If you, if you took the engines out of uh, geo metros and put in lead acid battery packs, you could rather than going to the gas station and burning fuel, you could drive your car uh, by plugging it into the wall. Um, so that really inspired me that there was great technology out there. There was a bigger question though, as I did these initial summer internships on this electric vehicle program, um, it, I realized it, it, it wasn't just science alone that was holding things back. It was really understanding the markets and how to package these products to to, to uh, change consumer behavior over time. So uh, I studied physics, wanted to get a good education in the science, but realized I really wanted to also understand uh, the business side of things. So coming out of school, um, I complemented that physics background with uh, being a management consultant and working in a lot of different industries with a lot of different companies. And what, what do you think makes consultants? I mean, I mean, there's like so many entrepreneurs that have been consultants in the past. I mean, you have the ones that have been also investment bankers and perhaps, you know, VCs, but there's a lot of entrepreneurs that they, that have been, you know, consultants before. Like, why, why do you think, like, what kind of background do you think consulting gives you to really tackle entrepreneurship so good later? So uh, that's a great question. Again, there, there's various tracks that can give you different different strengths, but I'll tell you what I found from the consulting background. Uh, being a consultant, what it, what it teaches you is that uh, you can dive into a brand new industry or a brand new company and be really intensely looking at the dynamics of that industry. And literally in a few weeks time, you can understand 80% of what's going on. The additional 20% takes time uh, and, and, and experience, but consulting really empowers you to understand you can learn a new industry quickly. So for example, with my first company uh, that was involved with tractor trailer aerodynamics, I had had zero experience with the trucking industry. I had a little physics background, but it never focused on aerodynamics. But that consulting background, once I learned about an interesting market opportunity, it gave me the confidence to say, hey, in a few weeks time, I can start to understand what's going on here. Uh, and that's critical to any entrepreneur. You know, some entrepreneurs are, are diving into things that they know well. Others just have this incredible confidence and drive to learn everything about a new sector and uh, dive in headfirst. So would you say that perhaps like during this time at one point you made the decision that you wanted to be an entrepreneur or, or what happened there? Because obviously, you know, it took everything a different course and you decided to go to business school. Yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, I I had a great uh, great experience where um, I was talking to uh, uh, another entrepreneur at one point, and I talked about the consulting background, and he said, "Whispering to the pilot is great, but eventually you should take over and fly the plane." So I absolutely, from early on, knew that I wanted to build something, that I wanted to solve big problems, and so entrepreneurship was certainly something that 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 I was excited about from day one. There is a, a great question about when is the right time to do that transition and when, are the, when is the right time to dive in. So um, again, through consulting, it was an ability to, to see lots of industries, study patterns across industries. I went to business school then uh, with the objective of starting a company and business school created a, a great environment to incubate various company ideas until choosing one and, and going full force forward. So then tell us about your frustrations and the problems that you saw and some of the gaps, because that really got you into starting your first baby. So uh, Ab- tell us the process. Absolutely. So, um, so again, when I, when I went to business school, I knew I wanted to, fi- uh, to uh, build an a environmental technology company. And I looked at a lot of, uh, a lot of sexy areas. There's obviously um, uh, a lot going on in the sustainability space. Um, but 
uh, just like anything, uh, lots of networking and letting people know what you're looking for uh, starts to bring lots of interesting ideas to the table. So um, ironically, my first company uh, uh, was founded because I went uh, ice climbing with a good friend of mine in New Hampshire. Uh, that's again, when you strap on ice axes and metal points to your feet and climb up frozen waterfalls, doesn't, doesn't seem very related to entrepreneurship. Um, but this uh, friend of mine uh, is another entrepreneur. He started a company that had some really cool concepts related to inflatable tents. Um, and he had been contacted by a uh, inventor who had wanted to put inflatable bubbles on the back of semi-trailers. Well, I ended up contacting this guy and, and uh, it turned out this guy wasn't alone. There was dozens of frustrated aerodynamicists around the world who pointed out that the worst shape to pull down the highway at 60 miles an hour is a big rectangular box. And if you do some very minor modifications to the big rectangular boxes that we ship things in, you can save billions of dollars annually for the long haul trucking industry. Literally just putting these, uh, these things called trailer skirts, these aerodynamic panels to keep air from curling under the trailer. And by putting this tail, which is called a trailer tail on the back of the trailer, you can improve fuel economy by uh, 8% plus, and, and this results in four to 5 billion annually to the long haul trucking industry. So I uh, did some simple math on that, um, realized that uh, there was a, uh, a big opportunity there and locked our sights on, on addressing it. So then how do you go about addressing it and, and bringing the company to life? <laughs> well, that's, that's the fun part. So my number one advice for entrepreneurs is um, when you see an opportunity that you think you can redefine the new normal. Uh, so when I say redefine the new normal, when, when I look at throwing, when I look at uh, thousands of trucks on a daily basis, throwing millions or on an annual day basis, billions of dollars out the window, just because of the shape of their trailer, it's clear to me that the new normal is going to be aerodynamic trailers. Um, with the, the current company we'll talk about a little bit later, Outrider, when we think about how distribution yards operate and a whole bunch of diesel trucks inefficiently moving trailers around, it's very possible to visualize the new normal. And so once we once you once you feel like you can see the new normal, um, the next step is putting a stake in the ground and saying you're going to fix it no matter what. And that's exactly what we did. So we uh, we declared AT Dynamics to be focused on addressing aerodynamic dra drag of the long haul trucking industry, and we uh, put a business plan together and started the hard work of building a company. Got it. And obviously, you guys uh, did quite a Quite a good run here. I mean, you built it to 75 employees and then the company ended up getting acquired and that was a nice outcome for investors, a 4 to 5x uh, return on the investment. But, but here there's one thing that I want to ask you and, and I know that for you it was, it was, you know, quite important, you know, like the way that you viewed intellectual property and perhaps how you were able to avoid being hurt by competitors copying your technology. Tell us about this. Absolutely. So, uh, intellectual property, again, is just one of those key areas for entrepreneurs to understand, and it's a critical uh, uh, part of, of how, obviously, we promote innovation in, in this country and around the world. Um, it, it, it will not build you a business by itself. So just the fact that somebody has a patent or you have a patent, that, that really doesn't mean anything. Um, but at certain times in a company life cycle, that intellectual property and, and trade secrets become very important. And so in the beginning of, of uh, AT Dynamics, we got advice there, and, and certainly on the current company as well, we got advice there. But 
Um, essentially, the, the key thing is to not just uh, patent the way that, that you are thinking about pursuing an opportunity, but thinking about all the other sort of modifications about, you know, if, if you have three or four ways you could solve the problem, you think there's a best way, you don't want to leave yourself open to someone copying you. And so in the case of AT Dynamics, we, we learned a, a, a big lesson there. Um, we uh, got good advice. We filed patents around our technology early on. And sure enough, just when everything was starting to go really well and we were starting to deploy our systems with hundreds of trucking companies and things were taking off, uh, we had this fly-by-night company um, all of a sudden go to all our customers and say, hey, we can do exactly the same thing, but we can do it for 30% cheaper. And they avoided all the upfront development and they, they developed essentially a replica of what we were doing. And uh, it was an amazing thing to see in a very cost-conscious industry, um, a lot of companies all of a sudden delaying orders, uh, slowing down sales processes uh, because you had a, a, a company coming in and, and essentially stealing your technology. Um, and so we went through the process of enforcing that. And, and that was a great lesson that I, I really, uh, by the way, we, we won that lawsuit. Um, but uh, that was a lesson that I hope most entrepreneurs don't have to face. But the reality is, is that uh, once you go through that really hard work of building a business, you need to have all the tools at your disposal, not only the best product and the best service to defend your situation, but for, for people that are truly just replicating what you're doing, that intellectual property can be a great stick to protect what you've built. Um, we, that, that learning certainly is passed on to what we're doing with Outrider. Um, as we've done, as we've invested millions of dollars and tens of thousands of hours in the current company, we made sure we had a very strong intellectual property field behind what we're doing as we uh, invest in and build this new industry for our customers. Very cool. And obviously, after the um, the acquisition, and by the way, like how long was the acquisition process? I mean, from beginning to end. I mean, was it a quick thing, or or did it take some time? Well, that's a great story. So my, my other uh, advice is from real experience there, but the absolute best way to get acquired is not plan on getting acquired. Um, so we, uh, uh, we were building the company. Uh, we were defining the market. We, were, we had our core team in place and, and the company was on a great, great growth trajectory. And as soon as you're doing that, as soon as the world starts to see that, that's when the potential acquirers get hungry. And so uh, the process did go on for a while because you will tend to get a lot of inquiries early on. Um, my uh, my advice for for people building, you know, for other entrepreneurs is um, expect it to be a long, dragged on process. Uh, and uh, for the best acquisition outcomes, there will be lots of people interested in you. It won't be the very first opportunity that comes across the plate. So I will say, you know, realistically, we had people reaching out to us for one to two years beforehand. Um, and then it really came down to a couple people getting serious at the end of it. Um, and then uh, from a, a, a first-time entrepreneur standpoint, it's really critical to have the right counsel and uh, bankers on your side so that you can continue to focus on, on having the business be strong all the way through the close of a deal because there are lots of things that can throw off a deal at the last few minutes in time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And obviously after this, once it got done, then you spent some time, you know, advising companies. I mean, you were spending time on, for example, like tech, trucking, uh, and then also thinking about automation. But, you know, certainly, you know, as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. But 
this time around, it took you a, a couple of years to go at it again. So why did it take <laughs> you so long? So it was a really fascinating thing. You, you With the, the first company, I spent nine and a half years um, bringing that company from a cardboard box and tape prototype we built early on to, as you mentioned, 75 employees, 40,000 of these aerodynamic tails on the road with 500 companies. Um, certainly at the end of this process, uh, when, when we got acquired, it seemed like a, a dream come true. Um, and, uh, and then I did move into uh, I, that phase of advising and being on the board of a number of companies. At the end of the day, though, it, it goes back to that sort of consultant versus entrepreneur standpoint. Um, <laughs> certainly the entrepreneurial drive is to see uh, all the pieces come together and, and building something. And so I had spent uh, uh, a bunch of time. I got approached by several autonomous vehicle companies. Um, I'd been involved. I'd been on the board of a robotics company. So I was following closely all the technology advancement in the world. And the, the learning from the first company was um, all the technology in the world is, is great, uh, but it doesn't build a business. You have to figure out how it can be deployed efficiently and effectively with customers. And I realized there were a lot of people doing autonomous vehicles, um, but a huge opportunity to put autonomous vehicles into a package that made sense to the end customer. So um, uh, again, it, it, uh, it was a, a great period of time to catch my breath, um, but certainly the itch to, to build something again was right there. And there was a lot of lessons learned uh, to apply to the new company. So what was that uh, this time around? Because, I mean, obviously after a couple of years of uh, sitting on the sidelines kind of thing, even though you were still involved as an advisor, I mean, you were, we were talking about opportunities and jumping in opportunities and, and taking over the pilot seat and, and, and taking over the plane. So, so at <laughs> what point do you tell yourself, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump on this you know, pilot seat again and, and make it happen? So uh, we, our family uh, moved out to Bend, Oregon after uh, selling the last business. Bend, Oregon is a fantastic mountain town, pretty, pretty great entrepreneurial community, actually. Um, but uh, there's a great story that uh, we have a, a ski mountain about 25 minutes from our home. And we took our, our kids there and the youngest child, um, who was a couple years old at the time, fell asleep in the car. And so I decided to stay back in the car. My wife was going to go skiing with the other children. And uh, I looked at my wife and I said, hey, uh, I, I've been um, thinking about this new company a lot. And I know we've had a, a couple great, great years here of kind of taking a break from the entrepreneurial chaos. But I, uh, I, I really am excited to start this new company. And my wife, who was excited to get skiing and was appreciative of me staying in the car with the child that had stayed asleep, um, looked at me in the eye and said, you know what? You've been talking about this now for several months. You're really excited about it. I support you. And so sitting in the, in the, uh, in the car waiting for the child to wake up, I hammered the, the cell phone for a bit and brought in our first checks and got the a couple employees I used to work with to, to quit jobs and, and join the new company, Outrider. Um, the next morning, I woke up next to my wife, and she rolled over and said, you know, I've been thinking, why don't we wait one more year until you start the new company? But of course, by that point, it was too late. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, what a productive snooze from your child. Eh? I mean, you get everything yeah, right. done in, in, in you know, a, a, a little nap. So, so very cool stuff. And and how how did you go about, you know, like really finding the team? You know, like was it like a top process of really getting the band together, you know, here for this next round? Yeah, so that that expression is very relevant. Uh, 
Uh, one, one of my biggest learnings from building the last company, and this is, this is classic, this isn't unknown, uh, but it, it, it's incredible how important it is. Um, in my last company, I spent 10% of my time building out the team, which is still a lot of time. And I spent 90% of time doing everything else. The best CEOs in the world spend 90% of their time on building the team and 10% of the time on everything else. And so that was really the key thing in how I thought about building this new company. So every time I needed to figure something out in the last company, I, I went and tried to figure it out. And you just cannot build at the same speed as finding people that have done it before um, and bringing those people together with a clear strategy and vision guiding them. And so uh, all of my work in those early days was bringing in the fantastic people I'd previously worked with or, or looking for more fantastic experts in the field. So uh, again, there'd been a lot of hype about autonomous vehicles out there. Um, I pounded the pavement uh, and uh, spent time with a, a bunch of different people in California, um, uh, some groups in Texas, uh, and came across, uh, got introduced to a co-founder of a company um, which had been focused in robotics and automation for over 15 years. It had been acquired by Lockheed Martin and led every ground vehicle, heavy vehicle automation program for the Department of Defense over the last decade. So again, big autonomous trucks. Um, this group that had worked together, some had, had, had departed Lockheed Martin, they'd spread apart a little bit. But when we met these, uh, these engineers, they said, you know what? This autonomous yard application that Outriders focused on, this is where autonomous vehicles will be highly successful first. Let's bring the band back together. So within about six weeks, we had 12 of the best autonomous vehicle engineers uh, in the world joining Outrider uh, to build this company and make this new reality. That, that upfront time building a team, um, you know, it, it would have taken us years to get that team together. And that networking up front uh, makes all the difference in the world. We did that across all departments, not just engineering. We brought in the best commercial experience. We brought in the best uh, legal IP experience. Uh, we brought in the best uh, robotics and automation experience. And you build the you, you get those fundamental pillars in place for your team, and you can move mountains as a company. Very cool. Very cool. So, so for the folks that are listening, what ended up being the business model of Outrider? Sure. So this is, uh, you know, not everybody spends their days uh, uh, on distribution yards, but it's a, it's incredibly relevant to everything that people eat, use, buy, order online, etc. Um, in the United States, there are over 10 billion tons of freight that's moved by truck annually, and the majority of that passes through one type of a distribution yard or another. So a distribution yard again is picture a, a big warehouse or production facility and a big parking lot outside. You have over-the-road trucks, the trucks you see on the highway, bringing trailers into those distribution yards to, to drop off product. And you have trucks coming to pick up product on the other end. So every trailer that gets delivered to a grocery store, every trailer that comes from a factory, all these things pass through these distribution yards. When they get to distribution yards, uh, there are certain trucks. They're called either uh, yard trucks or shifters or um, so they have funny names like yard goats or yard dogs, but they are these specialized trucks that are manned on a daily basis. There's, there's literally over 50,000 of these operating on a daily basis in the U S as we talk right now, but these yard trucks shuffle those trailers around the yard. You can picture you're inside a warehouse and you need the, the, uh, trailer full of toilet paper brought to the loading bay. 
Um, somebody calls out on a radio or through a tablet and these yard truck drivers move these trailers a couple hundred feet uh, from parking lots to, to loading bays. Uh, right now, um, these trailers and these yards, they get misplaced a lot right now. Uh, these over-the-road truckers have to spend a lot of time navigating in really confined environments, um, doing backup of their trailers in these environments. It creates a lot of congestion. It really um, reduces the, the daily pay that a truck driver can make because they're stuck in traffic at these distribution yards. It's a really hazardous environment. You have 80,000-pound pieces of equipment with people jumping in and out of them. Uh, 24 hours a day. So there's a real safety issue. And then inside the warehouse, if the right trailer isn't at the right place at the right time, it can create real backlogs in the velocity of how product moves through, through the supply chain. So it's, it's a really uh, unsafe, inefficient uh, uh, area that's been doing the same thing for the last several decades. And it's been doing it with big idling diesel trucks that on an annual basis are spitting out the fuel equivalent to a coal-fired power plant across the, the country on a daily basis just to move trailers a few hundred feet. Uh, what Outrider has done is addressed all these issues with an autonomous zero-emission system that can be simply controlled through a management software interface and linked to the other supply chain operations of Fortune 500 companies. Uh, so essentially, we've redefined what a modern yard looks like and have an opportunity to dramatically enhance safety, efficiency, and, and sustainability of how we move freight. Very cool. Very cool. And, and I know that you guys have raised quite a bit of money for the business. How much money have you guys raised so far? Yeah, so uh, we came out of stealth mode in, in February of this year. Um, the, uh, there's over $53 million in the company from top-tier investors. Very nice. Very nice. And you've learned quite a bit when it comes to raising money and also to dealing with investors, you've been able to really differentiate, and I'm sure that people you know, listening are really going to learn from this, learn to differentiate those that are really interested in pursuing an investment in your business from those VCs that are just like pursuing information, either from the market to place an investment or from competitors of portfolio companies. So how do you differentiate the ones that are for real from the ones that are just you know play, playing their part? Absolutely. So I, I uh, certainly have a, a lot of experience now and a, and a lot of advice when it comes to, uh, to fundraising. I think, you know, at its core, number one, you, you do have to have a, a phenomenal business that makes sense. And to have a phenomenal business that makes sense, you have to understand your customers' problems and come up with very unique and differentiated ways to solve those problems. And, and certainly that's, that, is, that is core to having a business. But then there really is an art to raising money as well. And I think that for a lot of first-time entrepreneurs, there's kind of this idea that, hey, I've got to take this idea around and people are going to jump all over the idea. And, and it, it's, it's always about me pitching the investors. Um, I think there's a, a screening process that's critical uh, and that will save entrepreneurs a lot of time to make sure that the investors you're talking to really fit what you're looking to do as well. Um, the, the consequence of not doing that is there's a lot of investors out there uh, where it is zero cost to them and all benefit to them to have every, every, uh, every company out there to tell them all the secrets of their business models and share that information. Um, there's sort of a code among professional investors that that information isn't shared. Um, however, in, in practice, a lot of information gets disseminated. So uh, my advice is have a fantastic business. And if you have a fantastic business, 
There are a lot of investors out there that, that should be focused in your industry area. And then when engaging with those investors, do this, the, the first call should always be a screening call of the investor before it's a screening call of your business. And that will save you and the investor a lot of time and will allow you to protect your, your information. Now, one thing that, that is also a rookie mistake from an entrepreneur is thinking that it, it, you know, they shouldn't be sharing their information with anyone. That's not true either. You should have a business model that's strong enough and an elevator pitch that's strong enough to be able to to give a high level uh, overview of your business and not go around asking people for NDAs in order to have a, a first conversation. Um, but in general, uh, uh, screening those investors will save hundreds, if not thousands of hours for a first time entrepreneur. And when you're screening investors, I mean, and, and obviously engaging and really understanding who is going to be in it for the long run and who is going to potentially behave, you know, when times are not as great, because I mean, this is like a, a ups and downs. That's the journey of, of entrepreneurship and building and scaling a business. But I guess like during that screening process, is there one question that you typically ask the investor where you're really paying attention to what kind of answer they're going to be giving you? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I think, uh, I, I think just turning around and, and asking the investor after doing a, a very short elevator pitch, turning around and asking the the investor early in the process, does this fit with your thesis? Who are the partners that are specifically trying to build a portfolio of companies in this space? And why would you invest in us versus someone up else at this time? We'll shed insight on how the investor is really thinking, as opposed to you having to go through every detail of your, your company before uh, getting the, the the most common answer of, hey, this is nice, but we'd like to keep watching you for a while before we do anything. Understood, understood. So so imagine, Andrew, that, that you go to sleep tonight, right? And it seems that, you know, in, in your family, you know, when one is sleeping, you know, the good things happen. So imagine you go to sleep <laughs> and, you, and you wake up in, in five years, okay? Like unbelievable snooze. And you wake up in a world where, the vision of Outrider is fully realized. What does that world look like? Uh, that that's uh, that's an absolutely core to our focus going forward. Our objective is to provide uh, the software platform upon which the future supply chain yard operations operate. So our objective is to have thousands of autonomous electric trucks operating on our software platform creating safer work environments, allowing our customers to uh, allocate employees to higher value tasks than repetitive, dangerous tasks. Uh, and uh, uh, with that, creating a much more resilient supply chain that isn't as negatively affected when there are uh, uh, global pandemics, that isn't as negatively affected when there's um, surges up and down in energy markets. And that aren't negatively affected or causing problems for our customers as there's surges in demand in their supply chain. So um, that uh, that resilient supply chain based on our software is our objective going forward. Very cool. And one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, if you had the opportunity to go back in time, you know, let's say you have a chat with that younger Andrew that is coming out of business school, exploring, you know, perhaps what what idea or what what company, you know, it's going to make sense. If you were able to go back in time and have a chat with that younger Andrew, where you're able to bring all this incredible knowledge, wealth of knowledge that you've built with Outrider or with AT Dynamics, and really give that younger Andrew one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, knowing what you know now? The, the advice I will share 
is I'll, I'll turn it into one piece of advice, but it comes to two or it comes from two early advisors that I had. One of those advisors was what I always defined as the swing for the fences, take no prisoners, go big advisor. And I had another advisor who early in my career, especially with, with, with AT dynamics, especially he was about getting your hands dirty and going and sitting with that truck driver and getting out of the truck with the truck driver and, and seeing how that that end user of your product interacts with your product and getting really hands-on and getting your hands dirty and, and digging deep into it. And so my advice to myself um, really is a, uh, is a result of, of getting that advice and then applying it, which is the opportunities are the opportunities for entrepreneurship are are massive and you should go for things that will have the potential to completely change how we ship product, for example, completely change how we produce energy, completely change how we grow our food, et cetera. These, these big picture items, because uh, a lot of uh, persistence and, and good people together uh, can do amazing things at the same time to be successful you can't get to the end of that vision without being incredibly hands-on in the early days. So get your hands dirty, uh, understand the customer needs. In the case of Outrider, uh, we have people that are on the ground using our systems to operate people's yards and understanding exactly what has to happen in that product to make it an exceptional experience for the users and the customers. Uh, so those two pieces of advice create a very powerful entrepreneurial path for anyone going forward. Very profound, very profound. So, Andrew, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? <laughs> Fantastic. So, uh, definitely uh, go to our uh, website, outrider.ai. Uh, we have a lot of information there and, and contact us uh, information. Um, we hope that uh, that our path and our path, not only bringing new uh, uh, automation solutions to market, um, but uh, creating a new sustainable planet uh, will inspire lots of people. And we'd love to hear from folks. Amazing. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thanks so much for your time. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.